Lord Jesus, we bow our heads, our hearts, and our lives before you this morning because you alone are the cornerstone. Our lives are built on you. The church is built on you. And you will return one day as King of kings and Lord of lords to put everything right that is wrong. But in our lives, so many of us have already come to you and begged you to forgive us and you have clothed us with your righteousness so that we know one day we can stand in the presence of our holy God, not because we are worthy, but because you have clothed us with your own righteousness. So now this morning we come before you asking that you would open our hearts to what you would say to us. We pray for families in our church, Father, who are weak and ask that you would strengthen them as we come this week to remember Mary Kay Sprague and her life and the gift she has been to us. We we pray for her family that you would encourage them. We pray, Father, for those who have put their trust in you recently that you would help them to grow strong in the hope and joy that you alone can bring. We pray for your children in Israel and in the Gaza Strip right now. Those who have put their faith in you, Lord, would you wrap your arms of love and strong protection around them and help them to shine as lights in the dark place that they exist right now. And we ask, as you have commanded us to pray, that you would bring peace to Jerusalem. Now, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and help us to hear what your spirit would say to your church. We pray in your name, the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. It's so good to be with all of you and to be able to worship the Lord together. This morning, we're going to begin by quoting together or reading together the verses that I mentioned last week I'd like us to try to memorize as we continue our way through Hebrews chapter 11. So they're in your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, or they will be on the screen, or you can open your Bible. I would encourage you maybe cut that little sheet, uh, that little place out of your bulletin and stick it on your mirror or on your fridge or in your car, somewhere where you can repeatedly see it, because these three verses are so critical for us understanding what faith is. So let's just say them together as we begin this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's say it together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not unto the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Those two verses from 2 Corinthians are really a commentary on all of Hebrews chapter 11. This morning in Hebrews chapter 11, we look at the example of Moses and his faith. Now, if there was ever a person that the Jewish people looked to as a core leader, a prime leader, a key leader of the Jewish nation, it is Moses. He took them out of Egypt and slavery and took them through the wilderness. It was through Moses that God gave the law, and then he took them right up to the promised land. He was an amazing leader, and certainly he had many skill sets. But in these verses in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, we see God's evaluation of the leadership of Moses. You know, leadership is a huge topic these days. There have been books and articles and websites dedicated to leadership. It is one of those prime topics today. And there are all kinds of descriptions of great leaders. You can look at a website from a Christian perspective and you will see that Christian leaders should be servant leaders and they should have ethical behavior, but they should also be able to solve complex problems. If you look at it from more of a secular perspective, for instance, LinkedIn right now says the top five qualities of a leader in 2023 are these, adaptability, approachability, courage, curiosity, resilience. But what I find fascinating is the, the qualities of leadership keep changing from generation to generation. What we're looking for in leaders keeps shifting, but God is not one who changes his mind and shifts his priorities. So what does God say when he looks at the life of that great leader of the Hebrew nation? Well, when God looks at Moses' life, what we see so clearly in these verses is that godly leaders are formed by faith and they are forged in faith. They are formed from their beginning in faith, putting their trust in God, but as they lead, they continue to be forged by faith or in their faith. They lead by example, not just by telling everyone what to do. They model faith in the face of huge obstacles and in the face of great difficulties. And every one of us, whether we like it or not, are leaders. There are people who look to us. They look to our example. They look to the way we live. And whether we see ourselves as being in a leadership position or not, there are people who are looking to us for how we lead. So what does the Bible say about leadership? If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 23, if you're using ESV, one of the Bibles in front of you, the page numbers will be on the screen if that can help you. But Hebrews chapter 11, let me just begin by reading at verse 23. We're going to read down through verse 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater, than, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
always looking forward. Faith always looks forward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Faith always sees the unseen as the greatest reality. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. What do we see about God's evaluation of leadership in Moses' life? Well, over and over again, it's by faith, by faith, by faith. What do we see about his faith? The first thing we see in verse 23 and then again in verse 27 is that it's by faith that he overcame fear. Faith overcomes fear. Now, during the pandemic, there were, I was amazed how many church sites I went on and they, they had a little slogan, faith over fear. There were t-shirts, there were sweatshirts, faith over fear, faith over fear. But it's more than just faith over fear. It's not just saying faith is on top of fear. It, faith overcomes fear. Look at what verse 23 says. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So it's really his parents' faith here. His parents had faith. They hid him because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, how does that strike you? I think all of us think our children are beautiful, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, there must have been something distinctive about Moses. I don't know. They, they saw that he was beautiful. And then it goes on. Here's the key. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Remember, Pharaoh had decreed at the beginning of Exodus that because the, the Jewish population was increasing so much, that every male child had to be executed at birth, and all of the midwives were supposed to kill all the male children. His parents, not afraid of that decree, hid him for three months. Can you imagine trying to keep him quiet when he's crying? A little baby can't control when they're going to cry. His mother always trying to somehow muffle those cries, but to love him and to let him cry so that she could know how to help him. They did not fear the king's edict. Faith overcomes fear. They believed that God had a purpose for this child he had given them, and it was more important than the fear of what the king had said. Now, this king had massive power over their lives. For them to be caught would be absolutely devastating, probably a death sentence. But they had faith, which overcame fear. But then we see this same faith modeled by his parents now in his life. If you look down at verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. Now there's a question, was this talking about when he left Egypt when he was running for his life or when he left Egypt leading the Israelites out? If you follow the, the flow of these verses, it seems to make sense. He left, it's talking about when he left and went into the wilderness and spent 40 years in the wilderness by himself when he fled. Now, it could be either of those times, but if we go back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us another part of the story. Remember, Moses leaves the palace. He's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He goes out to see the Hebrews that he has come to understand he is a Hebrew as well. He goes out to see them and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian, hides him his body in the sand. 
The next day he goes out again and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he speaks to the one who's striking the other one and he says, why are you striking your companion? And the one he spoke to answers him, Exodus 2 verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, surely the thing is known. And Pharaoh began to search for him. He, Exodus says he was afraid. Hebrew says he wasn't afraid. So is the Bible contradicting? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit is unpacking for us another part of the story. You see, many times the first reaction any of us will have to a desperate event in life is going to be fear. We have a, a desperate accident and we fear for the repercussions of it. We, we are in the doctor's office and we hear a diagnosis and fear begins to grip us. Something happens to one of our children or our relatives and fear grips our heart. It's a natural reaction, but faith overcomes fear. And fear, when we are walking in faith, becomes faith. Moses moved from fear to faith. And as he leaves Egypt then, he is no longer fearing the king. He's no longer fearing what the king could do. The Holy Spirit has given us the rest of the story, as it were. You may fear at first. That's natural. But when we are people of faith, that fear is overcome by faith. And now we begin to put our faith in Jesus and that, fa that fear disappears. Moses would have many opportunities to exemplify faith that overcomes fear. He would lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and they went right into the Red Sea and had no way to cross it, no way to get across. The armies of the greatest nation on earth, the, the powerhouse on earth, are pursuing them. There is no way they can save themselves but Moses exemplifies faith over fear. He prays to God and the, mo the waters open. Getting on the other side of the Red Sea, all of a sudden there's no water and all of the people come to Moses and they say, you brought us out here to kill us. You're no better than Pharaoh. And rather than fearing, Moses goes to the Lord, faith over fear, and God provides water. Years later, they are approaching the promised land and a king in full battle array comes out against them. His name is Amalek and he is ready to destroy these vagabonds who've just been working their way through the wilderness. They don't have an army. They aren't prepared to fight. And Moses goes up on the hill and raises up his hands in praise, in faith. And all the time that he has his hands raised in faith, Joshua wins in the battle. Over and over again, Moses had that opportunity to show that faith overcomes fear. That's what a leader looks like in God's eyes. Not because they know all the answers and they've got everything figured out, but because they put their faith in what we will see in a moment, the invisible one. Secondly, in verses 24 and 25, we see that faith redefines Moses' identity and my identity, your identity. When we are people of faith, it redefines our identity, who we see ourselves to be and who others see ourselves to be. Look at verse 24. By faith, 
Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. His identity was changed. His personal identity was redefined. It was a great advantage to be called Pharaoh's daughter. But all of a sudden, any time someone would refer to him as the daughter, as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, he would say, no, that is not. I am a Hebrew. He did that by faith because that was a great risk to himself. For him to understand that his faith had redefined his personal identity, it meant that he was moving himself from Pharaoh's house to the people of God, from a position of royalty to a position of slavery, from a position of privilege to oppression, from a position of being respected to being ridiculed. His faith redefined his identity, and he consciously himself made that decision. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, he could have argued, and we might argue, Moses, you would have had more input impact if you had remained as part of the royal family. I mean, you had a personal access to Pharaoh. You had influence and decisions. You were probably there when discussions were being held about how the Hebrews were going to be treated. Why didn't you just stay where you were? But he understood that his faith had redefined who he was. Do you understand that when you have put your faith in Jesus, it redefines your identity? No longer is our identity held by the family we grew up in. No longer is our identity controlled by the ethnic group we're from. We'll see in a moment, it wasn't even the fact that he was a Hebrew that became important to him. It no longer is our identity caught up in the job we have or the work we used to do or our reputation. Our identity is in the one we worship. Is your identity in the one you worship? Or is something else defining who you are? But it wasn't only his personal identity that was redefined. His familial identity, his family identity, his community identity was redefined. You see, faith is personal. Every one of us individually need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's very personal. We become a follower of Jesus, a, a Christian, a believer in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But faith also changes our family. For Moses, he, his identity shifted to the people of God. Look at verse 25. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The people of God, not the Hebrews. It doesn't say he chose to be identified with the Hebrews. That was his ethnic group. That wasn't it. It was with the people of God. 
And making that choice was extraordinarily dangerous for Moses. Believing in Jesus has always meant not only does our personal identity change, but the, the ones we identify as our family, our community changes. And it has always, throughout the history of God's people, been a dangerous choice, but an essential choice. Early New Testament believers, the ones that Hebrews was written to, the first people who received this letter, second-generation Christians, these Jews who had put their faith in Jesus, many of them were thrown out of their Jewish homes and families. Their parents said, if you're going to be a part of that group, you're no longer part of our family. They had lost their families. On top of that, they had lost political rights because Rome had made an agreement with the Jews and only with the Jews, distinct from every other group of people that Rome overran and controlled in their empire. Rome had agreed with the Jewish people that they could continue to worship their God. They would not be required to worship the gods of Rome. They would not be required to worship the Caesar. But every other group of people, the Greeks, the Spaniards, the Gauls up north, the Turks in what is now Turkey, all of those people, when they were overrun by the Romans, they were required, they were told, you can keep following your old religion, that's fine, but you have to add to it the Roman gods and you have to add to it worshiping the Caesar. When these Christians stepped away and they said, we are believers in Jesus, the Roman government considered them to no longer be Jews. And that's why many Christians lost their lives because they would not bow to Caesar. You no longer have the exemption that Jews have. You left the Jewish faith, so you have to bow to Caesar. Christians said, we can't, and they lost their lives. It would have been so much easier for them to say, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I'm going to just be quiet about it because I want to have this exemption. I'm Jewish by ethnicity. But when they identified with the church, they lost the exemption, and they often lost their lives because they would not bow to Caesar. Does it happen today? It still happens. For instance, in India, the Dalits, the untouchables, have certain privileges and social programs that, that are set apart by the government to help them. But when Dalits become Christians, the government often says in India, you're no longer a Dalit, you've become a Christian, you no longer get these social benefits. It's a struggle for many Dalits in India. Many of them want to stay quiet about their faith. But our identity shifts, not just personally, but corporately. Our family identity shifts. It shifted for Moses, and it must shift for us. And today, even in America, where we have freedom of religion, there are many Christians who say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a believer in Jesus. But I've got a problem with the church. 
I'm going to just do it privately. I'm going to just do it in my own. I'm going to just do it quietly. Maybe they have that little phrase that's used a lot, church hurt in their background. Somehow I was hurt by the church. And so I'm not going to be a part of the church. I just want to be a follower of Jesus. No, faith shifts our identity personally and in the family with whom we are identified. Moses refused to be identified with the family of Pharaoh anymore. He chose to be identified with the people of God who were considered slaves. We have the same call on our lives. Faith overcomes fear. Faith changes our identity personally and the identity of the family to which we belong. And then in verses 25, the very end of it in 26, we see that faith always turns from something and to something. It turns from the world and it turns to Jesus. The end of verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses had tremendous opportunities for pleasure in the palace. But verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking forward to that future reward, whatever that would be, wherever God would give it, he was looking forward and he was not going to settle for temporary fleeting pleasures. Faith always requires that we turn from something and to someone For Moses, he stepped away from the palace, from wealth, from privilege, from influence, and he stepped towards the people of God who were oppressed, who were slaves, but he said, I am one of those people of God. Peter said to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And we, when we compare Peter with Moses, we might say, well, Peter, it wasn't much. You left some fishing. You didn't exactly have a whole lot, Peter, but he, he had to leave his home to follow Jesus. He, he left what he had. He left whether it's much like Moses had or little. We have to turn from so that we can turn to. Remember the rich young ruler? He said to Jesus, I I have obeyed all these commandments. I have done all of this. What else must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, this one thing you need to do. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And he left with a sadness on his face because he owned much. He loved something more than Jesus. He wasn't willing to turn from that wealth to follow Jesus. Jesus said it's very hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. There is more pleasure, fleeting pleasure, but pleasure that they're going to have to turn from. Now, it's not to say that wealth is sinful in and of itself. We have people like Daniel. He lived in the palaces for decades now, not, he had no choice. He was a slave, even though he was the number two man in the kingdom. He was still a slave. He couldn't leave. But he had extraordinary wealth. But Daniel always was a follower of God first. And he said, if you throw me into the lion's den, that's fine. But I will not relinquish my sole allegiance to my God. 
So it's not how much we have, it's where we place our allegiance, where what we love, and we have to turn away from every love so that we can turn to our soul love and allegiance, who is Yahweh, God, Jesus. The world seduces, and it seduces, as, as this verse says, with fleeting pleasures of sin. Whether those pleasures are sensual pleasures or whether they are material pleasures, as soon as we have them, they fly away. They, they appease us for a moment. In fact, they tickle us for a moment, and, and we're so excited. And then they actually leave us with a sadness. Have you ever felt that? Something that the world says is so good, and it, it pulls you in, and then as soon as you've tasted of it a little bit, you feel sad. It's not fulfilling, but somehow you want more. It's what sin does. Jesus is a portion who always fulfills, never disappoints. We see it with material things. You know, you, you buy a new car, you're so excited, and then the next thing you know, it's an old car, right? You buy a new house, and you're so glad to be in your new house, and next thing you know, you're repairing stuff. You're trying to keep it together. Moses turned from Egypt's treasures, tombs that even today we find filled with gold, their tr the treasures in their temples were renowned for extraordinary wealth. Today, it's all covered with sand. But he was looking forward to his reward, which was eternal. And we know that he received it because when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured and he's radiant with glory, who's there with him? Moses and Elijah. Moses turned instead to the reproach of the Messiah, the reproach of Christ. That's what we're told in, in, in verse 26. How could he turn to the reproach of Christ? Moses didn't know Jesus back then. How could he return? How could he purpose to have the reproach that came with Christ because he identified with the people of God and their hope was in their Redeemer, their Savior, their Messiah. And they were ridiculed by the Egyptians for that. The Egyptians said, you don't have an army, you don't have any power, you're our slaves. Why do you have a hope in someone you can't even see? But Moses said, that is my hope and I will take all the reproach that comes with it. Are you willing to have a, a, that same attitude that you will take the reproach of people who mock us and laugh at us for believing in Jesus and we haven't seen Jesus with our own eyes? Are you willing to bear that even if it means giving up everything we have here on earth as far as human wealth goes? Moses chose to turn from the wealthiest family on earth to the family of God because he was looking forward to his reward. There's something worth so much more than everything the earth can offer us. I love the way Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, verse, beginning with verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Nothing compares to Christ. There are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are willing to lose everything so that they can gain Christ. That's what faith is all about. In a recent issue of 
the voice of the martyrs. It tells a story of a man in Lebanon living in the Hezbollah area of southern Lebanon named Adnan. Four years ago, he made a very, very dangerous decision. Adnan grew up as a Muslim. He began to read the Quran. He read it over and over and over and over and over. And the more he read it, the more questions began to come to his mind. He went to the local mullah, the teacher of the local mosque, and he began to ask him what these, these questions to try to get answers. And the mullah told him he had an evil mind. He went back home. He kept reading his Quran, trying to understand who God was and how he could be a good follower of God. He read in the Quran about someone named Isa, that's Jesus, because the Quran recognizes Jesus as a great prophet. He wanted to know more about Isa, Jesus, and he couldn't find anyone who could tell him. Finally, he, he contacted a pastor in Lebanon, and the pastor invited him to come to his church. Living in the Hezbollah-controlled area for a Muslim to go into a Christian church was extraordinarily dangerous. He went, he asked the pastor questions. The pastor told him about Jesus, told him that Jesus was, in fact, God, the Son of God, God who had laid his life down for him and that Christians believe in Jesus alone. He went back home not having accepted that, but he felt like a weight was starting to lift off of his shoulders. He got back to his house and he began to pray to God, God, just show me what's true. God, please show me what's true. He said he went to sleep that night and he had the most vivid dream he's ever had. He said, I heard Jesus say to me in this dream, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as he tells his story, he said, I woke up in the morning with tears in my eyes and I put my faith in Jesus only. He said, these are his words, that was the first time in my life when I woke up that I felt peace inside. He had been a man with explosive anger at home. He would throw things at his wife and his family. That all changed. His whole personality seemed to change, and yet his wife totally rejected him because he had left Islam. He worked for his brother in his brother's shop. His brother fired him because he had left Islam. When his father heard about it, his father said, I'm going to kill you. Today, Adnan still lives with his wife, but she just barely tolerates him. But these are his words, quote, I don't care if I die. I now know where I'm going. Now I know there is no death with Jesus because he promises those of us who follow him that we will have eternal life. Adnan is willing to lose everything and turn away from it because he's turning to Jesus. Faith turns from the world that we were a part of to Jesus. And then we see in verse 27 that faith endures because the eyes of faith are focused on the invisible one. They're fixed on Jesus. Look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He would not look at idols. He would not look in temples. He was looking at him who is invisible. Faith endures when my eyes are continually fixed on Jesus. I do not see him as Thomas did, but Jesus said, blessed are those who believe 
without having seen. Who or what are you looking at for help and for hope? Are you looking at your bank account? Are you looking at your retirement? Are you looking at your job? Are you looking at your reputation? Are you looking at the friends that you have that might be able to help you when you come into a hard time? Are you looking at your family? Is sort of there your, your safety net? Faith endures because the eyes of faith are focused on the invisible one, Jesus, and Jesus alone. Psalm 146 tells us, don't put your faith in princes or in any son of man in whom there is no salvation. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, we keep looking unto Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then the fifth lesson we have about faith from Moses' life is that faith relies on the blood of another. I love how this description of Moses' faith ends in verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Faith relies on the blood of another, on the blood of an innocent lamb dying in our place. Moses is the guy through whom God brought all these plagues. And this is the last plague, the tenth plague, where the firstborn in every home is going to die as the angel of death goes over Egypt. Moses is the one who God used to bring all these plagues, but even though he's the one God used, he was the instrument God used, he still personally is dependent on the blood of an innocent lamb. Moses is the one who stood in Pharaoh's courts and confronted him. Let my people go, says the Lord. But when he's dealing with his own life, he personally is dependent on the blood of an innocent lamb. By faith, he kept the Passover. He modeled it for every other Jew in Egypt. He sprinkled the blood on his doorposts and on the lintel of his doors. We, too, are completely dependent on the innocent blood of another, and that other is Jesus and Jesus alone. When John introduced Jesus to the people of Israel, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. Let me just close with these beautiful words about the blood that Jesus shed for us from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He is our lamb, our Passover lamb. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Godly leaders are formed by faith, and they are forged in faith. Faith overcomes fear. Faith redefines our identities. Faith turns from the world and turns to 
Christ, to Jesus. Faith endures because our eyes stay fixed on Jesus, and faith always relies on the blood of another. It is only the blood of Jesus that forgives our sins. If you are going to be a leader in God's eyes, you need to be formed and forged in faith. Lord Jesus, we bow before you so grateful for Moses' example of what it means to be a leader that you use, not according to the world's standards, but by your standards. Someone who lives personally by faith, who risks everything in faith, who's always looking forward to the Redeemer, to the one who is unseen, but the one who offers us a reward that no one can take away from us. It will never be buried in the sands of the desert. Lord Jesus, we rest and trust in your blood, the innocent blood you shed to take away our sins. Help us to be a family of believers who walk by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.